Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and every body. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing. With so many fun things happening this spring, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, it's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Oh my gosh, everybody, welcome back to The Worst Year Ever. This is part two of the first two episodes. Part two of episode one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, you, yeah. got, you get two. You get two on the first day. Isn't that exciting? Because we didn't budget our time well, but it's a, be- a gift for you guys. Yeah, we just have too much to say to each other. Yeah. We I- do. And speaking of gifts, oh wait, no, it's not time for products and services. Not quite. I am just a hack. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. I accept your apology on behalf of everyone listening right yeah, we now. Don't, we don't traditionally open with ads. We actually do I'm, on our I have, an addictive, <laughs> I have an addictive personality, and I have gotten addicted to ad pivots, and it's a real problem. If I don't do it twice a day, I just get the shakes. You're Sometimes like, I'll pull my car over in the street and just shout at a passing yeah. police officer, Try hymns! <laughs> <laughs> Is hymns like a diaper for dudes? Adult diaper? No, it gets your dick hard. Oh, it's a dick hard mm. pill. Cool, it's cool. a dick pill. It's a dick hard pill. Yeah. Is it spelled like the word him or the other yeah, word him? Yeah, but with an S. Hymns. Mm. No, not the like m- what, what religious people do. Although okay. selling right. hymns has become my religion. I mean, I'm sure that gets so some he, people hard. Is this podcast sponsored by hymns? Maybe one day. We can only I'm terrible help. at this Fingers job. crossed. Penis, penis is crossed, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Cody, do you want to talk about the Washington Post? Yeah. <laughs> penis is crossed and then talking about the New York Times. All right. So I'm actually going to talk about the New York Times and the Washington Post kind of together because I think they have 
kind of similar problems and kind of similar uh, positives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are two of America's papers of record. Uh, a phrase that tends to mean that they're you know very rigorous. They show attention to detail and have accountability in their editorial process, and they have like a truly like a national view and attempt to be the best possible record of what happened in the nation, not just in a region for the day. And we could debate how much they do that or not. Um, but as as I think we all can guess or remember, the New York Times and the Washington Post are both generally pro-war. Another theme that I think we all sort of get with a lot of these mainstream news organizations. <laughs> now, Cody, unless it's war against Nazi Germany in the late 1930s, in which case they oh, really yeah. think we should see how this Hitler guy plays out. Let's like hear him out. Let him, let him do what he's going to do. And we'll we'll just stay keep to ourselves. Yeah. Be yeah. neutral. Yeah. Um, just It's just another, uh, you know, balanced viewpoint. Uh, what Put if, America not second. Yeah, exactly. Um, whatever whatever the uh, synonym for not second is. Also, specifically, the pro the war in Iraq is interesting. I think that, like, the war stance that draws claims of bias is the anti-war stance. No one really accuses anybody of bias if they're pro-war. Right. Interesting thing about our culture. Both New York Times and Washington Post have also been heavily criticized for their reporting on the Obama administration's drone strike program. Uh, and their general lack of reporting on civilian casualties uh, for that program, mm-hmm. which civilian casualties are, I guess one would describe it as a problem with drone strikes. Yeah, I certainly would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's fair. And uh, to, to quote a study from uh, Jay Bachman from the School of International Service at American University, uh, the willingness of the New York Times and Washington Post to state positively that only legitimate targets were killed in the immediate aftermath of drone strikes in Yemen and Pakistan is especially problematic because exactly who was killed in drone strikes is difficult to immediately confirm. Uh, the study found it's that not always, not always, not, <laughs> not always. always difficult, not always difficult. But, uh, yeah, the the other site, the site that I write for, Bellingcat, did a fun investigation last year where they traced back one of the missiles that we sent Saudi Arabia that was used to blow up a school bus with a couple of dozen God. small children on it. Yeah, uh, fun legitimate targets. Seems a, a theme, uh, like a school bus, uh, hospitals, weddings, mm-hmm. things of things of that nature. It's a war, you guys. Yeah. It, hey. Okay. Um, it's a very old, long war. Um, this this, uh, this study found that civilian deaths uh, there were reported in stories 9% of the cases where civilian deaths were actually proven to have occurred. So really? they just did not report on them. Wow. Um, neither New York Times nor the Washington Post have corrected their errors mm-hmm. uh, in failing to accurately report on the effects of drone strikes. Uh, and the editorial departments of both papers have said that it is either not up to them or not in the paper's policy to run corrections on such stories. So cool. papers of Journalism. record, yeah, love that response. Um, uh, uh, another fun fact: the New York Times's nickname is the Gray Lady uh, because the entire staff are huge fans of the erotic novel Shades of Gray. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 very, Oof. very cool. I wasn't uh, yeah. gonna include that because it seemed a little blue, you know, a little, a little rough mm-hmm. around the edges for our very clean podcast. But sounds, that is true. Sounds pretty basic mm-hmm. to me. Well, you know, mm-hmm. not for not for the paper of record. So, I actually hate describing things as basic because it just describes something that's popular that people yeah, enjoy. People like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll move on from the drone strikes, but I think it, it it is hard to understate the detrimental effect of a misinformed public getting sort of like normalized to civilian deaths from drone strikes. Like we've talked about normalization a lot and normalization of violence, but like if you have this. President who's not really criticized for a lot, um, especially stuff like this, and you're not even reporting on these civilian deaths, and you're sort of creating this idea that drone strikes are actually like very safe and effective. Mm-hmm. 
when they're totally not and they kill people uh pretty indiscriminately um with a lot of collateral damage uh it's bad i yeah. would say yeah we'll talk about that a bit with me and pod save good games. okay yeah um, my, my theory is that they're that it's bad yeah I, I concur okay my theory is that that pod is going to in fact save america mm-hmm. well okay well you put a pin in that <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I thought they were, but I guess not. Uh, they do good reporting, too. Like, the Washington Post has a great, like, investigative team. Um, yeah. People like Dave Fahrenheit, like, they, they do a lot of Fahrenheit's good reporting. amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah incredible political reporting. I tend to like stuff, a yes. lot of things that the Washington Post specifically puts out. And that's, I want to make that clear. Like, yeah. they do yeah. good reporting. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the New York Times was the first to publish the Pentagon Papers. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. Got, they got sued for it. Like, they, they do yeah. good things. That was a long time ago, but... Actual reporters at the New York Times tend to be very... I've worked with a number of them. Tend to be very, 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 very good at their jobs. Like, the actual investigative journalists and stuff who are doing the work, like, most of what people get pissed off at is, like, the op-ed section and stuff. Like, there is a lot of really good original reporting done by the Times, and I would never want to pretend like there isn't. Yes, exactly. I want to make that clear. Um, And, yeah, we're going to get to the op-ed stuff. Yeah. But, again, like, sort of going with the theme, I think... Uh, that is generally true is it's just they're they're very pro-war uh, and uh, not questioning of the military things like that um, the Washington Post by their own admission ran 140 editorials and articles supporting Bush's wars wow. um, they at one point apologized for its practice of burying articles but the problem wasn't that they buried stories it was just that the anti-war stories were vastly outnumbered by the pro-war stories so they just did not do the reporting Um one study posited that there was just a sort of general attitude among the editors that boiled down to the idea that, like, the war was inevitable. So why publish these contrary voices? Mm-hmm. Interesting that you want balance, but not when it comes to maybe saying that, like, nuh-uh to war, you know? <laughs> I mean, is it possible that war is a good thing, though? For their paper. I haven't considered it. I guess I should read their many, many articles about how it <laughs> yeah, is. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you start with that? Yeah. Do some research. Cody. Okay, I will. I will read their 140 articles <laughs> about how Bush's wars are good. Um, so they have that problem. Um, but I, like you, Robert, you alluded to, what I think we really should talk about are the Washington Post and New York Times columnists and fact checkers. Um, on some more news, uh, we actually recently did an episode written by Creature Features' own Katie Golden mm-hmm. um, about Brett Stevens specifically. He's a New York Times columnist. And uh, how he's basically used his columns for his own petty bullshit combined with climate denial. Right. Um, and that's what the New York Times op-ed seems to be, a place for out-of-touch elites to sort of air their petty personal grievances, uh, mostly involving how kids on college campuses are totalitarian uh, in one column by Barry Weiss, as her only evidence of this totalitarianism, she linked to a fake Twitter account. Uh, recently, columnist Brett Stevens, after being called a bedbug <laughs> by a Jewish professor in a tweet that got five likes, uh, Brett wrote an entire column that likened him to a Nazi. And his evidence shared a link to Google Books with the search field reading Jews as bedbugs, which led to him finding a quote about bedbugs that completely undermined his point because the quote was about literal bedbugs. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, 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 cool. seems, it seems like maybe there's like a complete lack of oversight and editorial rigor, um, which a paper of record should probably have. I would say um, so. It also seems like if they fired Brett Stevens for his salary, they could afford to pay... A couple of dozen really talented journalists to investigate like six to ten really complicated stories a year each 
and provide like more than weekly content that was incredibly useful and groundbreaking. But because they don't, we get to know that Brett Stevens uh, Googled Jews as bed bugs <laughs> and, and did not read the quote that he found. He didn't no, even no, read it. Of course not. Unbelievable. No. Uh, why, why would he? He found it in a book. Therefore, what that professor did to him was the same as the Holocaust. Exactly. QE fucking D. <laughs> you just got blown up. Random Jewish professor who I think is a Nazi now. It's just a, it's just a real problem. Yeah, um, it is. And uh, so this actually kind of started due to new leadership from James Bennett. He was put in charge of the editorial mm-hmm. page in 2016. Um, interesting year mm-hmm. for this to start, mm-hmm. 2016. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that year and how good it was. I've heard for of everybody. it. Yeah. yeah. So James hired a bunch of Brett Bucks yep. uh, to, as he claims, we're looking to challenge our own and our readers' assumptions. Uh, never mind that the paper only seems to be challenging any assumptions from the right and many of the readers' assumptions about climate change are true, so don't need to be challenged by Brett fucking Stevens. Um, But in general, the spectrum of challenge is pretty narrow, too. Glenn Greenwald points out it spans the small gap from establishment-centrist Democrats to establishment-centrist Republicans. Uh, Again, (laughs) just sort of all these viewpoints that are approved and uh, none that are like uh, war bad, maybe more taxes. I don't know. Things like that. This all reminds me of the liberal consensus. This is something I think Mm -hmm. about a lot. And I think it helps to understand some of what we're seeing here and on the internet uh, and culturally in general. In the 70s, there was something developing called the liberal consensus. Uh, one could make an argument that this is because reality sort of leans liberal. But basically, there was there were these nonpartisan organizations like the New York Times and the Brookings Institute. And uh, conservatives saw them as incredibly biased. Like the Brookings Institute would do studies and they would study uh, issues and do research and gather facts and sort of come to conclusions and propose policy. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a nonpartisan organization meant to do that. And a lot of their policies were liberal leaning, right? But it was the result of a nonpartisan effort to research and understand an issue. So in response to this, people were very mad that Nixon was sort of buying into the liberal consensus. So we started to see things pop up like the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation. Uh, these sort of conservative think tanks that were responding to what they saw as I bias. I see, yeah. So they're saying, you're biased, therefore we're going to be biased. Right. Right? So you have, like, all these institutions were basically admitting their own bias and their goal being to find facts and information that they can use to prove a conservative policy that's worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this a lot, shades of it at least, in people like Ben Shapiro, uh, Prager University is great at this. You'll notice that a lot of their speakers are actually from the American Enterprise mm-hmm. Institute. So you start with a conclusion, you find facts that can support it, as opposed to finding facts, doing research, and then analyzing it to arrive at a conclusion. So there's always been this sort of push against the liberal consensus and liberal media in the 60s. The first instance of it was used by George Wallace. Mm-hmm. And it was used to basically discredit the civil rights movement, saying the media only supported the civil rights movement because of their liberal bias. Oh, so it's been going on for a while. It's been going on for a while. (laughs) And it's this sort of general idea that has been building and building over the years. Um, And we're becoming more and more polarized. Right. It's this push against the liberal consensus, liberal media, and saying that, like, well, now we're going to do it, Mm -hmm. even though they weren't doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like Fox News. They go full far right conspiracy nut job as a response to what they perceive as bias, and then we get to sort of where we are today. I think we're still grappling with it. Um, there's more to say about like the Powell memo, this sort yeah. of uh, 
pushed more think tanks, more lobbying in favor of, of big business, regardless of the facts. So I think there's always this seeming call for balance when balance isn't warranted. Right. Um, which, again, is yeah. sort of what we've been talking about, where you have 50 articles about climate change and then 50 articles denying climate change. But that's not balance. That's the illusion of balance in the face of what reality actually is. Right. Because denying climate change is just lying. Uh, right. You're not being balanced at all. You're you're putting something out there that isn't true. Yeah. And so you have these, uh, I think, a lot of these institutions like the New York Times who are being accused of this bias. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you don't have any of these voices and any of these voices. And so they're trying to create a balance that doesn't actually exist. They're getting all of these columnists to write about how we need more nukes and how climate change isn't real, how all the all the college campuses are just a bunch of lib snowflakes while I'm going to accuse some yep. critic of being Hitler. And that's why we are sort of here now, it yeah. seems. Yeah, to me. more criticizing their articles about war, less criticizing liberal. Yeah, <laughs> liberal it's just, and, bias. and like, again, like, I'm not going to say there's no liberal bias and things like of that. Of course. Um, but this is sort of where we're getting at. Well, and I think also like a big chunk of the liberal bias that like doesn't get written down as bias is actually their bias towards wanting to be that fucking kind of Cronkite voice that like 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 that that leads them to giving weight to sides that ought not be given weight just because they want to be seen as being fair because that's more yeah. important to them than accurately reporting on the truth. Um, yeah, like, absolutely. Because getting attacked is is like they they just can't handle it, and I think. Part of that's to do with a lot of the fact that a lot of our most prominent voices in mainstream journalism uh, are rich kids who got the job because they were able to take an unpaid internship, who went to J school and learned all the things you learn at J school, which often doesn't uh, interact with like what actually makes a good journalist right. uh, and whose family is tied into like the media industry somehow. Like it's it's a bunch of people who when they get actually like attacked, can't push back because mm-hmm. they don't have any kind of like, they're, they're gormless uh, at a fundamental level. And that is not good. Yeah, right. As soon as they're accused of that bias, they're like, oh, I guess, I guess, I guess, I, 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 I guess we are. We have to fix that. I got to overcorrect. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, yeah, it's a lot yeah. of overcorrection. And in general, just saying, saying what your narrative is. I know the head of the New York Times recently said like, oh, we, we focused on Russia for a couple of years and now we're not going to do that because right. that, you know, that didn't work out. So now we're going to focus on race. And this idea of like choosing your narrative for like the next year and right. a half. Well, that's not. That's not journalism. That's not journalism. You, you like, you research, you react, you analyze right. and stuff. You don't just say like, this is, this is our narrative now. Um, so I don't care for that. But speaking of people airing personal grievances and papers of record and wanting balance except when it comes to the left, the Washington Post today, Thursday, September 12th, 2019, ran an op-ed called I Like Elizabeth Warren. Too bad she's a hypocrite. And I'm I'm going to briefly read this thing, and I want you to stop me when you think that I've made my point. Warren attacked former Vice President Joe Biden. Off to a good start, Liz. Personally, this is me saying good. Yeah, good job, Liz. Um, For holding a kickoff fundraiser in Philadelphia in April, which she criticized as a swanky private fundraiser for wealthy donors in an email to supporters the next day. Well, I helped organize that affair. And I thought her attack was extremely hypocritical because nearly 20 of us who attended the Biden fundraiser had also given her 2,000 or more in 2018 at closed-door fundraisers in swanky locations. You didn't stop me. 
But if you didn't catch that, well, I helped organize that affair. This is a right. person who just like they organized the thing and they're upset. So they're writing an article about it. This is ridiculous. And like we we will, I'm sure in other episodes, talk about Elizabeth Warren and her donors. Ooh. But like, come on, Washington Post. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Right. Like it's just this person who's totally involved. And at least yeah. they mentioned it. Um, they don't always do that. But. They seemingly have a huge bias against anything on the left of the establishment Democratic Party, especially Bernard Sanders. In 2016, they ran 16 negative articles about him in 16 hours. That's um, wild. Yeah, recently. Well, but I bet they ran 16 positive articles about him in 16 hours. To be too. balanced. I bet they did to that. Be to be balanced. Yeah. I bet that proved their balance. Uh, recently, Glenn Kessler gave Bernie Sanders three Pinocchios about a claim that 500,000 people go bankrupt every year because they can't pay outrageous right. medical bills. Um, so he fact-checked this, gave him three Pinocchios. The claim was proven to be true within Glenn's article. What? The, <laughs> his source for the fact-check said that it was true. That's so bizarre. I mean, it's okay. just... But it's kind of like, guys, if you multiply negative one times negative one times negative one, you get positive three? I don't understand math. But I think that means that three Pinocchios equals a truth. Well, he yes. they they <laughs> equals one truth. He lost a couple of Pinocchios just because he felt like it. You know, took a couple yeah. off. Something about Bernie mm-hmm. just like just knocks those Pinocchios. He's out, like, but know? also it's Bernie, so take two off. Yeah, um, maybe mm-hmm. that has something to do with the Washington Post being owned by the richest man on the planet, Jeff Bezos. Somebody no, Bernard Sanders have thinks impact. should have significantly less money, mm. criticizing mm. Amazon all the time. I don't know, maybe. Mm. Um, Cody, they- that's like suggesting that I skew my coverage in favor of dick pills because they support my podcast. What else do they and, support? Uh, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they support uh, uh, healthy erectile balance. They, they support uh, blood is, flow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. unbiased. There are claims that Bezos is pretty hands off with the Washington Post. I don't know. Maybe he is. Um, that doesn't mean that there is not uh, this sort of push. Um, th- again, we see it. We see the New York Times, too. We see it in established media in general. One quick note. Also today, September 12th, 2019, the Washington Post published their last issue of their Express publication. Um, because, you know, money, digital media, sort of, ah, we're all going under. The cover says, hope you enjoy your stinking phones. Um, as if the Washington Post isn't owned by the richest man on the planet. Right. But that's the gist. I just think we, we should be wary of things like that, of specifically their editorial columns. You'll see a lot of disclaimers. One thing I've noticed a lot of, there are a lot of articles that are like, oh, the Democrats are going too far left for me to vote for them. But then you're like, oh, it's written by like Dick Cheney or Ari Fleischer or something like that. It's like, like these people. Were you going to vote for them anyway? Never. It's this sort of like taking a moderate or a centrist or a Republican right. and saying like, oh, the Dems are go- oh, we're going nuts which I think is a bit of a dishonest framing. I agree with you completely. Uh, we got to take a quick break for things. To you know sell. what? Okay. You appear to be done I love speaking. Yeah. Breaks. I, I thought you said I love crepes, but we're I not. I love crepes. I love crepes too, but that's not, I assume that's not what we're selling. I'm selling that right now by okay. crepes. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Turn on break now. <laughs> ow. Ow. Those were ow. great ads. I um, loved them. I bought them all again. Oh, uh, you're going to run out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep buying them. But that money is coming back to you in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. We got a lot to get through. I'm going to be pretty quick on what I'm here to talk about now, which is Pod Save America. Mm. You guys are familiar that's the goal of this podcast, right? Is we are this, yeah. are we are we trying to save or destroy America? I have I have forgotten. I think I destroy America so that we can build it back up again in the way that we prefer. <laughs> if we if like if we have time, I mean, I guess like we'll 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 pencil that in after destroying it. Like yeah. if we if we wind up, you know, well, you know, all podcasts are an evolution, so we'll see what mm-hmm. happens if we want to rebuild it back up. Yeah, because part of me is thinking that after we destroy America, that's probably the time for us to launch our podcast uh, about Frasier, where we break down every episode in an exhaustive 45-minute detail. Um, I love that idea. Yeah, so maybe we'll destroy America, we'll talk about Frasier for three years, and then we'll rebuild it. Okay, that's a good plan. Okay. You guys on board? Yeah. All right. I'm going to push for saving America. I don't want to rock the boat here, but I think I'm going to convince you both by the end of the year that we should save it. Robert, Cody's out. Okay, out. Cody's out. All right, wow. well, let's see. Do we, can, can we Marketplace can we get of ideas, ghost? huh? Can we get I the can... ghost of the dog that played Eddie on Frasier <laughs> to, to be our third? Yeah. All right, we'll get a He's, Ouija he'd board. He'd be a perfect fit. Um, all right, we're oh, going to talk yeah. about Pod Save America, specifically. <laughs> Sophie's right here. What if it's Sophie? What? Oh, oh, Sophie's right here. No, I was hoping you would hire Anderson. Wait, are you saying oh, Sophie is the ghost of the dog from Frasier? No, I was just offended that you would hire a dog that isn't my own, mine. A like, ghost well, dog at that. Go- Sophie, I mean, it's the ghost sibling. of a dog. I know, but you, your sibling is in this room and you're not going to hire her? Listen, the ghost now, of that dog has a lot of 
star power. Yeah, it's relevant. So to, it's relevant I, to the show. There's gonna be a lot of stories. But have you seen my dog's butt? Come on, very cute. I've I'm never read employment now, law or talked to an employment lawyer, but I do think we're legally bound to hire ghosts before living dogs. Mm-hmm. But we'll check into that and we'll circle back. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. We won't. Ghost Act of of 2004. <laughs> All right. Pod Save America. Pod Save Bros. Because they're bros, y'all, mm-hmm. right? They're well, bros. Well, you know that common, that common phrase, God save America? Yeah. All right. Okay, go on. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> uh, pod save. See, that's another, in the first episode, we talked about Jake Tapper writing Himbo and then calling it a day. They were brainstorming on names. And somebody said, what about Pod Save America? And that was the day. That's what that they was landed. the work that got done. I know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Pod Save America is comprised of John Favreau. Not that John Favreau. John Lovett. Not that John Lovett. Tommy Vitor and Dan Pfeiffer. During the- That twi- Don Pfeiffer. That, but yeah, that. Did you say dog Pfeiffer? Yes. <laughs> Mad dog Pfeiffer, you know, as we like Ooh. to call him. Uh, during the 2016 election, they hosted Keeping It 1600. Also not a great name. Uh, but then after after Trump won, they rebranded as, you said, we guessed it, Pod Save America. And started their own podcast network called Crooked Media. Yes, that is a quippy Hillary <laughs> reference. Very cool. Um, I think it's important to distinguish that they do have some interesting shows on that network. Uh, Pod Save the People is hosted by civil rights activist DeRay McKesson. Uh, and that's very well well done. It doesn't have the same, uh, you know, kind of bro perspective of uh, the Pod Save guys. Uh, with friends like these, dives into understanding people on either side of the aisle. And I've been known to listen to the all-female panel show, Hysteria, which uh, How Stuff Works host Dana Schwartz is a frequent guest on. So they do have some good programs to offer. Uh, but we're here to talk about Positive America specifically. There's too many of them to go into <laughs> all of their backgrounds, but suffice to say that they all met while working for the Obama administration. Pfeiffer was the communications director. Uh, Vitor was the assistant press secretary and national security spokesperson. Favreau and Lovett were both speech writers. Uh, and one little thing that I found interesting uh, <laughs> was, that I guess, at one point, Lovett secretly officiated the first gay wedding at the White House. But because it was during a time when Obama's views on same-sex marriage were still ambiguous, he straight up did not have permission. Like, they told him not to. In several interviews, Lovett has been quoted as saying, we were very nervous. They were nervous because they were getting married, and I was nervous because I snuck into my boss's house to perform a wedding against (laughs) his wishes in his backyard. Um, That's actually pretty cool. I know. It is pretty cool. Uh, I actually did the same thing in Jack O'Brien's backyard, but the people who got married were unaware of the wedding, too. So it was really... (laughs) Doubling down. So you, so were, you like, were really nervous. It was same but different. Yeah. <laughs> How are they going to react when I tell them that they're married now? <laughs> uh, one tidbit that I found less fun, slightly, uh, is that apparently at one point, John Favreau posted a picture on Facebook of him posing with a cardboard cutout of Hillary Clinton and grabbing her boob. Uh, cool. As scandals go, that's not a big one, but it is pretty broy. It's pretty And uh, again, that's the thesis that I keep coming back to about I mean, this is just a general vibe. That's my opinion listening to the show. It's why I don't listen to it anymore. Uh, So I don't know if they've evolved a bit since then, but that's kind of a consensus that people have. Um, But people love to tune in and hear their perspective. I mean, they've got a really unique one. They've been inside the party for a long time. They've seen what a functioning White House looks like. Um, But they get a lot of criticism uh, based on the very valid perception that because of 
this access that they have. You know, they have been in the Democratic for a Party for a long time. They have access that they that they have some blind spots uh, criticizing the establishment and the people in the establishment or that they don't want to lose that access, you know, by pushing too hard, by pushing too many buttons. Um, for example, when you listen to Pod Save America, you're going to get no real criticisms of Obama. Uh, be, they were a part of the Obama right. administration, right. even during like we're in a period right now where we're seeing these mass child detentions. And that's a policy that did start under the Obama administration. Yes, Trump has made it worse and exa- changed it and like ratcheted this whole thing up. But there's a real conversation that needs to happen about what our the Democratic Party, what Obama's administration has, what role they played in all of this. Um, but whenever something like that comes up, they dodge the issue. Same thing with talking about drone strikes. Yeah, yeah. The drone program that Obama, you know, that started there, it, it continues to this day and nobody talks about it. it's worse now and because it's the president now. is worse. So. And it's yeah. just, and, and that's, it's very frustrating. And that's a, something that's frustrating to me in general when we're talking, going through this whole primary process I think it's fair to criticize Obama. It doesn't make him a completely bad person. It doesn't mean that everything he did was bad, but you have to be able to have some self-reflection. And that is the main thing for me that's missing from Pod Save America. Um, You know, the whole whole thing, like just this week, uh, Cody shared this with me, uh, but John Favreau tweeted a glowing endorsement of former UN ambassador Samantha Power's new book, The Education of an Idealist which is, I guess, a memoir that takes a look at U.S. foreign policy from the inside. It apparently talks a lot about Bashar al-Assad and Russia, but fails to acknowledge anything about Obama's drone program or how the U.S. armed al-Qaeda in Syria, you know, or about Yemen, you know, the stuff that's going on in Yemen with America's support. So it's, again, just whitewashing, you know, highlighting what they want and like ignoring the actual issues that right. people have. Um, yeah. And someone yeah. helps. Yeah. A situation like Yemen, like she was involved with that and just being like, Hey, check out this book. I don't know. It's, it is it, that it lack shouldn't of- be a source you go to for news. It's a source where like the, obviously, as you pointed out, they have some unique perspective. That's not, uh, not valuable. Like there's certainly value in hearing from people who've worked inside a functioning white house, Absolutely, but they're not journalists. They're right. a propaganda arm of the Obama administration. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. That's why I originally did listen to their show and yeah. liked it because most of what they talked about was like, Related to like their experience in the White House and like how the White House functions, and it was mm-hmm. interesting to get that perspective. But then the election happened, and they kept sort of being wrong and like doubling down and like well, not sort of reflecting on that, and yeah. it became way less. Interesting. Well, but didn't didn't they keep it sixteen hundred? Oh did. no! They oh did. no! They didn't. Mm. They didn't. That might mean the pod won't save America. It might, it might. They might. I don't know if it won't. Uh, yeah, the Pod Save America team has also supported the United States of Care. Um, I'm going to let Cody talk a bit about this because he knows more about it. But basically, the United States of Care is an initiative that aims to put healthcare over politics and to change the conversation. I mean, healthcare is politics, mm. but okay. Mm. Also, the council working on this initiative is comprised of a ton of healthcare executives. People have spent their lives ripping people off in exchange change for their lives and they claim to be a safe space to discuss common sense solutions uh and they're 
mission statement says, United States of Care is a new movement to ensure that every single American has access to quality, mm. affordable health care, regardless of health status, social need, or income. And that's a pretty conservative talking point. Access is very different than having. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback online from that. And they've waffled. You know, they've come out as saying they're for Medicare for all. But then, you know, they start, you know, support this or they're tweeting I'm a Medicare for all advocate. This is from John Favreau, by the way. I'm a Medicare for all advocate. I also want to make sure that there's a path to get there, which involves building a movement and persuading people who don't currently agree. So it's a different approach. It's more of a centrist, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, super centrist. It, it, I, I find issue with a lot of this framing a lot from like Favreau, where he's like, you know, in, it involves building a movement and persuading people. Right. Well, John, I don't know if you're familiar, but. In 2015 and 2016, there was a movement. You dismissed it. And now that it's a popular idea, you're adopting it, but still sort of couching it in this language of access. Like, yeah. it's just like a movement happens and a candidate says for two years, healthcare is a human right. And he said it so many times that people yeah. now think that because it's true. Um, and now they're sort of like piggybacking on that movement, but also like to the detriment of the movement by like allying with like uh, what former Senator Bill Frist is involved in this organization. A lot of private insurance companies are involved and you still have like love it doing these sort of rants about how we got to keep the private health insurance if you like it and things like that, which stops the the actual momentum of the movement and persuading people that this is a better path. If you're saying like, we got to do this, we got to do this and this incremental change and like, we got to protect this, then you're not actually persuading people. Yeah of the thing that you actually want, which is Medicare for all. Right. So saying you're for Medicare for all, but doing all this other stuff tells me that you're not really. Right. Another thing that people find frustrating about Pod Save America, again, that they have access to all these candidates, but they rarely ask them hard-hitting questions. And when they they do, or the, they just let the person, you know, get off the hook with a pretty slippery answer, I'm sure that has to do, again, with the access question of not wanting to burn bridges, wanting to be a place yeah. that people want to go. But you're squandering an opportunity. And they're not journalists. And they're not so journalists. Like, you know, yeah, experience with and that, like... It, it takes like speaking as someone who's who's done a lot of interviews, like there's a thing you have to get over when you're kind of new to it, where like we're trained to be kind of non-confrontational right. um, just in civilized society. And like you have to be willing to say things to someone's face that will make them hate you. Yeah. Um, right. And if you're not a journalist and not experienced doing that, you're just not going to do it in a conversation. Right. Like right. you're just not. And especially yeah. in that community, especially that sort of like with, the, with I mean, their establishment friends and like yeah. having been there. I mean, sure, in the interviews, but they also have big people come on. They've had the presidential candidates coming on, love it or leave it, John Lovett's own show, and do this like queen for a day type segment where they'll ask them a bunch of really intense questions like, as president, would you recognize a hot dog as a sandwich? And like, part of me is interested in seeing- Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Yeah. I, I, part of me is, is curious about seeing how- uh, these very serious people are in a less formal situation, but not really. What's more important to me is to like take that time to ask Amy Klobuchar something important. Right, you know? you're th- they're yeah. there. You're there. You're there. Why are you like wasting? Why this are opportunity you squandering for? this opportunity? Um, it's like having Donald Trump on your show and like testing his toupee and like trying to humanize <laughs> him. It and is ignoring the fact that like he's calling a huge chunk of the country vermin. Yeah, um, Jimmy Fallon yeah. might as well be a, a pod safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one, la- one little thing I wanted to say, uh, and this is a 
according to Cody. <laughs> oh no, what did I say? Lovett is the one that suggested to Elizabeth Warren that she take the DNA test that proved that she is 100% that bitch who doesn't have very much Native American blood at all. I was yeah. wanted to do a Lizzo joke. I'm sorry. I did hear that. <laughs> it was a really bad call, and it was the kind of really bad call you'd make if, like, one of the things that makes these guys so bad at actually analyzing a real presidential election is that their only experience getting a guy elected was, quote, unquote, helping to get the most charismatic politician of any of our lifetimes elected. Like, Barack Obama didn't need that much help. No. Um, <laughs> like, um, so I don't trust that these guys actually have good advice on how to get a president elected. I don't either. Because their previous experience is the most charismatic man alive in the country got elected and they were around. Right. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. Lovett didn't join Love it. Lovett didn't join the yeah. administration until after he was elected. He worked for, he worked for Hillary. Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't yeah. get her elected yeah. either. Right. Mm. Sure did not. Neither time. They all also worked for John Kerry. So yeah. Yeah. maybe not all of them, I, but most of them did. I, I might say they are the worst people to ask about how to get a president elected. <laughs> and they might be the yeah. worst people to it try and be. save America. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay. We're going to take a real quick break again, and then we're going to come back and hear what Robert has to say about stuff. We're going to talk about Nate Silver, but first, enjoy these ads for silver that you put up your butt to cure diseases. We're selling butt silver, right, Sophie? That's that's one of our sponsors? She's nodding, yes. Okay, she's all right. Con- she's confirmed no, it. she's not. She's confirmed it. Products! Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. We're back. We're back. We're back. Now, we have to get through this last bit quickly, so we're going to have fewer interjections. 
uh, which is why this is a a good time for me to talk about Nate Silver, uh, a man who Cody Johnston personally finds deeply engaging and, dare I say, <laughs> uh, powerfully erotic. On to the story. Uh, that was defamation. If you were a politically engaged person who feared the rise of Donald Trump in 2016, there is a better than even chance you spent a lot of time refreshing the website for Nate Silver's poll aggregating thingamajig 538. <laughs> Presumably, many folks will do the same thing throughout 2020, sighing in ease as Trump's chances fall and cringing as they rise throughout the campaign. Ooh. On the surface, 538 seems like a totally down-to-business, numbers-focused endeavor that can be relied upon for objective analysis of the polls. The reality, of course, is murkier. Nathaniel Reed Silver was born on January 13th, 1978. He fell in love with baseball from an early age. If you aren't a fan of the sport, this may come as a surprise to you, but baseball is essentially Dungeons & Dragons with an optional component where human beings get out in a field and do stuff. To many, <laughs> many fans, baseball is about the numbers, calculating run averages and turning players into two collections of statistics. In a 2006 Chicago Tribune profile, William Hagman wrote this about Silver. Quote, Silver caught the baseball bug when he was six, growing up in East Lansing, Michigan. It was 1984, the year the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. The Tigers became his team and baseball his sport. And if there's anything that goes hand in glove with baseball, it's numbers, another of Silver's childhood interests. It is always more interesting to apply it to batting averages than algebra class, Silver said. <laughs> now, as a high school student, Nate was an avid debater at a state-level <laughs> champion. He was not a big fan of public speaking, but he loved delving into research and crafting arguments. His childhood in East Lansing, Michigan, was pretty normal, outside of his love for baseball, which is objectively a red flag. <laughs> he wrote for his high school newspaper and showed an interest in both journalism and economics. Nate went to the University of Chicago, where he thrived and eventually got a degree in economics. He spent some time working as a consultant for a gigantic accounting firm in the early aughts, but his true love remained baseball. He spent most of his free time crafting a system for predicting the performance of professional baseball players. He named it the Player Empirical Comparison and Optimization Test Algorithm, or PICOTA, a reference to the name of a relatively obscure infielder named Bill PICOTA. In that Tribune That's... article, Major League... Yeah, he's a huge nerd. Huge Huge nerd. Also, and you said he wasn't a big fan of public speaking. That's why he loves Twitter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that Tribune article, Major League Baseball consultant Gary Huckaday described how Pakoda worked. Quote, Nate isolated five components how a player provides value. Then Pakoda looks through the history to find similar players who have had similar performance shapes at the same age. It takes a look at all those guys in the past who have been similar and takes a look at what their careers did after a certain point. Keep that in mind, because it will be relevant to Nate's later work in politics. Now, Pakoda was successful enough that Silver eventually sold it to a site called Baseball Prospectus. He got a job there as a managing editor and did that for a while. As George W. Bush's presidency wound down and the 2008 election campaign started winding up, Nate Silver found himself focusing more and more on national politics. He started an anonymous blog under the name Poblano and provided his analysis of the polls, which often differed from the conventional wisdom of the pundit class. Nate's hot takes were based in large part on applying the lessons he learned analyzing sports to politics. I'm going to quote from a New York Magazine profile now. Sports and politics offer several obvious parallels. Both involve a competition, essentially between two teams. Both involve reams of statistical data available for devotees to sort through, or more commonly, for intermediary experts to sort through, analyze, and then interpret for you. In baseball, these stats track player performance, how many hits a player gets, and when and against what kind of pitchers. While in politics, the data tracks voter preferences. Who do you like and why? What kind of choice are you going to make on election day? These stats on their face seem pretty straightforward. If a hitter hits 300, he's valuable. If Obama opens up a six-point national lead, he's in good shape. 
So... <clears throat> In May of 2008, Nate had his first major win. Pollsters started predicting Hillary Clinton would win big in Indiana and only lose by eight points in North Carolina. This was seen as evidence that her campaign was finally recovering from the temporary lead Obama had accrued over the past few months. Silver, blogging as Poblano, only got around 800 daily visitors to his site at the time. That changed when he published an in-depth breakdown of Clinton's polling numbers, which suggested she would lose by 16 points in North Carolina and only win by two in Indiana. The final numbers were a one-point win for Clinton in Indiana and a 15-point loss in North Carolina. So Nate had been almost exactly right. Very close, and every major pundit had been wrong. Nate went on to correctly predict 49 out of 50 states in the 2008 election. Or at least, that's how things were reported. (laughs) Time put him on their list of 100 most influential people for doing that. Two years later, Nate's new website, 538, was bought by the New York Times, netting him a pile of money. Now, the reality of that award he got for predicting the outcomes of 49 out of 50 states was that Nate had not, in fact, predicted anything. His model had calculated what it saw as the most likely outcomes for all 50 states. And in 49 of those cases, the end result had gelled with that calculation. Mm -hmm. There's a difference, though. Nate had not said Obama is going to win all these states. Instead, he'd said, my analysis of these polls shows Obama ahead in all these states. And the media had sort of translated that into Nate Silver correctly mm-hmm. predicts the results. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, this yeah. is not hair splitting. There's a very important difference yes. between the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This actually happens uh, quite a lot with like him. And just even mm-hmm. like with 2016, on the reverse side, every, everyone often says, like, oh, the, everyone got it wrong. Trump won. Everyone got it wrong. No, they didn't get mm-hmm. it wrong. If you say you, uh, someone has a 20% chance of winning and they win, right. you're right. They hit, he hit right. the 20% <laughs> chance. Like, that's how that's how this works. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. that That's how numbers work. Yeah. yeah. So Nate builds this 538 blog. Uh, and as he did it, he was, again, sort of taking the ideas that had first earned him success in the realm of baseball and applying them to politics. There is a lot of logic to this system. Uh, Here's New York Magazine. Quote, In concocting 538, Silver decided the best way to read the polls was to put them all together, with the idea that averaging 10 polls would give you a better result than trying to pick out the best one. Again, he wasn't the first person to do this. Other sites like Real Clear Politics and Pollster offered the same service. But, as Silver told me, sometimes the answer is in looking at other alternatives that exist in the market and saying, they have the right idea, but they're not doing it the right way. So he came up with a system that predicts pollsters' future performance based on how good it's been in the past. In finding his average, Silver weighs each poll differently, ranking them according to his own statistic, PIE, pollster-induced error, based on a number of factors, including its track record and its methodology. One advantage of this system is that, during the primaries, the system actually got smarter, because each time a poll performed well in the primary, its ranking improved. So that's what Nate does. And, uh, you know, for years, uh, Nate Silver was considered to be something very close to a prophet by many in particularly sort of like the liberal side Mm -hmm. of things. Uh, In the 2012 election, 538 was lauded for correctly predicting the results of all 50 states. It won a Webby Award. In 2013, it won another. And Nate sold the site to ESPN and became its editor-in-chief. Or I guess the New York Times sold the site to ESPN. Yeah. 538 relaunched as something more akin to a major news site in 2014, covering a wide variety of stories with the perspective of data journalism. And then came the 2016 election. It would be a stretch to say this election was Nate's undoing, but it was a blow to his reputation. Like everyone else, 538 predicted a Clinton win as most likely. However, that bird's eye view alone is not fair. Nate Silver actually took a huge amount of flack from the left from, you know, giving Donald Trump a 30% chance of victory. 
On November 5th, 2016, the Huffington Post's Ryan Grimm published a very dumb article titled, Nate Silver is Unskewing Polls, All of Them in Trump's Direction. Now, that unskewing line is a reference to a bit of political history some of you may remember. Back in 2012, a moron grew convinced that all of the polls were biased against Mitt Romney. Using nonsense math, he unskewed them to predict a massive victory for Mitt. This did not happen. So while outlets like HuffPo gave Trump like a 1-2% to chance of victory, 538 showed his campaign as having a serious fighting chance. And Nate Silver, to his credit, repeatedly outlined that Trump had a very viable route to an electoral college victory. I'm going to quote from Ryan Grimm's article now. The short version is that Silver is changing the results of polls to fit where he thinks the polls truly are, rather than simply entering the poll numbers into his model and crunching them. That was a good voice. Silver calls this unskewing, thank you, a trend line adjustment. He compares it to a poll to previous polls conducted by the same polling firm, makes a series of assumptions, runs a regression analysis, and gets a new poll number. That's the number he sticks in his model, not the original number. He may end up being right, but he's just guessing. So this guy basically said that like Trump benefited unfairly from the skewing and of right. course ate his words hardcore when Trump won. And yeah. like, you know, I think it's actually unfair that Silver took some credit, like took flack for like not giving Trump more of a chance of victory because he he really did repeatedly point out he could totally win. Yeah. If the things right. that happen happened. Like yeah. there's a chance he will win. Yeah. 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 Silver gave him a solid chance of winning and he won. And you got to give the dude credit for that. Also like this, like he may end up being right, but he's just guessing. Everyone's yeah. guessing. Yes. Everyone's Thank guessing, homeboy. Yeah. Yeah. None of you. Yeah. Now, uh, I just gave Nate a lot of credit for his performance in the 2016 election. So it's also fair that I uh, uh, I criticize him for the things that he was wrong about in yes, that election. Yes, please. I'm in ready August for it. August of 2015, 538 published this article under Nate Silver's byline. Donald Trump is winning the polls and losing the nomination. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now that it, he is predicted, just like yeah. guessing and like wishful thinking. Yeah, that is just guessing. Uh, now, in that article, Nate predicted that Trump would lose the nomination, and his evidence as to why was largely not based on hard data science, but on history. Quote, 12 years ago, in 2003, Joe Lieberman led in most polls of the Democratic primary. Eight years ago, on August 2007, Rudy Giuliani maintained a clear lead in polls of Republicans, while Hillary Clinton led polls of the Democratic nomination contest. Four years ago, in August 2011, when Mitt Romney began with a lead in the polls of Republican voters, but he would be surpassed by the end of the month by Rick Perry, the first of four Republican rivals who would at some point overtake Romney in the national polling averages. Lieberman, Clinton, Giuliani, Perry, as you probably gathered, are not the faces of Top Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Only Clinton came close to winning the nomination. Ugh. Following that, Silver included one of his own Twitter posts in the article, which makes him look pretty dumb in retrospect. So this is a tweet from August 9th, 2015 by Nate Silver. And he's like, he's doing it as like a little script. Media, Trump's doing great. Nerds, no, those polls don't mean what you think. Media, a new poll so- shows Trump doing great. Proved you wrong. Yeah, he's a... Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How can you be like that not self-aware? Like that's just right. parody. Also, mm-hmm. it's interesting I, that he's done this yeah. sort of like if you look at history actually that polls yeah. change and that he doesn't he doesn't do that for Joe Biden, does he? No, we don't. No, <laughs> he, he don't does do that. not. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Interesting it's September and he's yeah. uh, has not has not made he's, that maybe that he's point. learned his lesson. <laughs> yeah. Now, at this point, the problem with Nate Silver is pretty obvious. He's never gotten out of the habit of treating political predictions like sports. In baseball, appealing to history makes sense because there are Mm -hmm. thousands upon thousands of games and thousands upon thousands of players, and you have a lot of data with which you can use to draw useful conclusions. 
American politics does not work that way. There are, comparatively speaking, relatively few congresspeople and elections in recorded history, and even fewer presidents. Outliers, then, matter a lot more, and making accurate predictions based on history is much harder. But even in that article, Nate fell directly back on his baseball history to help justify his opinion that Trump had no chance. Quote, so should you ignore those national polls entirely? In a literal sense, they do have some correlation with election outcomes. Even this far out, a candidate near the top of the polls is a somewhat better bet to win the nomination than one near the bottom. But that's like projecting a major league pitcher's numbers from high school stats. Sure, you'd rather draft a random 17-year-old with a 2.14 ERA than another one with a 3.31 ERA if that's all the information you have to go by. But that data doesn't reveal very much, and its predictive power tends to be swamped by other indicators. This is so, wild. Like, yeah, it's really dumb. Like, yeah, an actual like, <laughs> you can look at a player's like actual performance over their entire career and like judge them based off of that. How do you? How do you? How do you bring that logic to politics and elections? Yeah, it. I mean, it worked for a while. You got to give him that. It worked um, for a while, but like, even the logic of it isn't like right. sound. Yeah. It worked, but it's some not. Of it's, but some of it's luck. Um, yes, a lot of it is luck. Uh, and in that article, Nate made it, it stated that our emphatic prediction is simply that Trump will not win the nomination. It's not even clear right. that he's trying to do so. Um, so well, that might I be am true. Not the, <laughs> I don't know yeah. that Trump was trying to actually mm. win. <laughs> that is a fair point. Now, I'm obviously far from the first person to criticize Nate for treating politics like the baseballs. Among the community of people who understand statistics, he has quite a few detractors. One of them is Nassim Taleb. Nassim is one of a galaxy of thinkers who got famous thanks to Malcolm Gladwell. He's an investor with a unique philosophy on risk that I don't really understand and a very successful history of making money via predicting bad economic shit and then capitalizing on it. I understand that. Nassim Taleb does not like Nate. Nate does not like Nassim. And starting in 2015 or so, the two started shitfighting on Twitter. Their disagreements are fairly nerdy, and I am not competent to get into the weeds of their deeper statistical slap fights or to say who's right. What's important is that you know that this was not a friendly rivalry, and Nassim took to commenting on Silver's methods on Twitter. He regularly chimed in on comments made by other individuals criticizing 538. And then, in April of 2018, this happened. So a guy named Joachim Marnitz, okay, like, he, he posts like an, a, a criticism of 538's Nowcast. Mm-hmm. Nassim Taleb comments to that, Yes, the Nowcast came out later in his BS, and Nate Silver weighs in, Nassim, it's pathetic that for the last two years you favorited, retweeted hundreds of comments from random Twitter nobodies that take your side of the argument. Maybe you should save some of your dignity and debate me. To which Nassim responds, Silver, you're a quack. Do not engage me. Just broadcast to your followers. Three million or three billion doesn't make a difference. I write formal papers. To which Nate responds, LOL, I can't believe all it took was for someone to stand up to your bullying by trolling you back to turn you into such a cuck. Oof. (laughs) Calls him a cuck. Nate's liver. Yeah. Classy. I love it. Oh, unironically calling someone a cuck like that. And oh like, Nassim also, comes out as a bit of a dick in that too. Like, they both seem like unpleasant yeah. oh, people absolutely. I wouldn't want to have dinner with. They're yeah. having a moment online. I highly but, doubt that Nate actually laughed out loud. I, 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 I love that his response, like, Nassim comes out with the incredibly arrogant, like, in any other argument, somebody like trying to argue that they're right by saying, I write formal papers yeah. would be the person I sympathize with least in that argument. Yeah. And then Nate follows up by calling him a cuck. Yeah. LOL, you're a cuck. <laughs> and, end of argument. 
Oh, it's amazing. Uh, he just, yeah, no one looks good here. Yeah, it's incredible. So in December of that year, Isaac Farber wrote a really interesting breakdown of the spat between Nassim and Nate on uh, the Medium blog Towards Data Science. It is a very wonky dissection of 538, and I will not pretend to understand every piece of the math that this guy brings up in it. Faber does not call 538 useless and certainly seems to see value in Nate's analysis of the polls. But he also criticizes Silver for accepting praise for his not-a-prediction predictions of the 2008 election results. Quote, he should not have accepted the honor if he didn't call a winner in any of the states, which is a fair point. <laughs> if you didn't predict anything, don't <laughs> yeah. take credit for predicting right. it. Yeah. Faber points out that there are two types of uncertainty in any prediction, aleatory and epistemic. If aleatory uncertainty is the probability of, say, rolling a six on a standard die, epistemic would have more to do with the uncertainty involved in getting certain results in a specific game or with specific other types of dice or whatever. Like it has to do with more with the system. I'm going to quote from his write up now. Quote, bespoke models like 538s only report to the public aleatory uncertainty as it concerns their statistical outputs. The trouble is that epistemic uncertainty is very difficult, sometimes impossible to estimate. For example, why didn't 538s model incorporate before it happened a chance that Comey would reopen his investigation into the Clinton emails? Sports, like other games of chance, have very well-defined mechanisms which lend themselves to statistical analysis. On the other hand, highly nonlinear events like contested elections may not. With fewer data points, you can see the variation of the Senate predictions is enormous. Gauging the performance of models on these types of events becomes doubly difficult. It isn't clear if a prediction is wrong owing to the quality of the model, epistemic, or just luck, aleatory. Because there is so much uncertainty around nonlinear events, like an election, it could reasonably be considered frivolous to report early-stage forecasts. The only conceivable reason to do so is to capture and monetize the interest of a public which is hungry to know the future. I will not go into the technical arguments. Taleb has written and published a paper on the key issues with a solution. Here we can say, with some confidence, that 538 predictions are not always reliable probabilities. Seems fair. Yeah. Make, makes sense. Solid, solid math slapdown yeah. on Nate there. Yeah. Now, if the last several months are anything to judge by, Nate Silver still suffers from the problem of weighing his own biases too heavily in his predictions, even when the numbers don't back him up. Back in August 2019, Nate tweeted about an analysis of campaign finance data published by The Washington Post. This analysis looked at the people who had donated to Democratic presidential campaigns and concluded that Sanders had the most loyal base of any campaign because more than 80 percent of his donors gave just to him. Here's how Nate interpreted that data on Twitter. So basically, Bernie fans only like Bernie and only Bernie fans like Bernie. Now, a number of people pointed out that this was not a fair analysis. I found a good website on the very biased Splinter News website that nonetheless hits at some of Nate's core issues. Quote, first of all, it should not be surprising whatsoever that 99% of people who have donated to Sanders' anti-establishment campaign did not then turn around and give money to former Vice President Joe Biden. <laughs> Sanders' base is loyal, and there are a few other candidates who truly share his goals like Medicare for All. Plus, many of his donors have given in small amounts, so it makes sense to think that they may not have money to give elsewhere. Sure. But the chart and the story clearly showed a despite Silver's suggestion that roughly 20% of Sanders supporters gave to other campaigns. Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren share 60,000 donors. Sanders supporters also gave to Rep Tulsi Gabbard in significant amounts. Most overlapping donors gave more money to Sanders. Now, a number of people also pointed out that, while Sanders donors tended to be loyal, a number of donors to other Democratic candidates also donated to Sanders, which would suggest that supporters of other candidates don't hate Bernie even if they do prefer mm -hmm. Kamala Harris or Mayor Pete. More to the point is the fact that since Sanders has so many small-dollar donors who only gave to him, this suggests something else very important that Nate missed entirely. 
Malika Jabali, who writes for The Guardian, The Intercept, and The Root, pointed this out in a tweet. Quote, today we learned that Sanders gets support from people who may not normally be drawn to Democratic candidates. Something tells me that might come in handy in November. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, that's all pretty clear evidence that Nate, like everyone, lets his personal opinions cloud his analysis, even when he claims to just be looking at the numbers. Data can be interpreted in numerous ways, and it's clear to me that Silver has an anti-Bernie bias. His actual articles on 538 are fairer about Sanders. In July, he published an article about how Bernie was, quote, ahead of the pack on health care. And in February, one of his editors, Claire Malone, wrote an article about how Bernie could win the 2020 nomination. But even in his supposedly unbiased coverage, Nate has a tendency to reveal himself as best embodied by this June 6th, 2019 headline. Bernie Sanders has the highest floor, and it's pretty damn low. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where he's like pointing out that Sanders has like the highest like floor of support of any of the Democratic candidates, but it's but low, it's not, so it's not a big like. Yeah. It's, come on, dude. Like, yeah. Oh, uh, he does that all the time. Yeah. So, sorry, yeah. we were supposed to write brief summaries of these people, and I wrote nine pages, and no, I apologize. It, but you got through that so fast. Yeah. It was hard to. It. I was biting my tongue so much. Because yeah. I knew we had limited time. I didn't want to interject. Yeah. But it was interesting. Yeah, that colors a lot of a lot of my already held opinions about Nate Silver. Yeah. I mean, we could go through every one of his tweets and be like, well, here's how you're misrepresenting it. Let's not, though. We're not going to. <laughs> I, I, I will not be reading all of my responses to Nate Silver's tweets. He's got um, some zingers in there. Got some zingers. There's some, hey, hey, folks, there's some good tweets in there. All right. Um, but, oof, boy, he... Uh, yeah, just just take 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 him with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. Take everybody with a grain. Take of salt. everybody. Take <laughs> everybody yeah. with a grain of salt. But again, particularly people who claim to have some sort of like that their analysis is based purely on the numbers. Yeah, um, because there's always more to it than that. Mm-hmm. And like, right. and and again, predictions. Like one of the most valuable things I think about that um that uh uh. The, the the quote that I read from that like statistical wonk medium blog was the point that um you when you're analyzing sports there are rules to baseball you know that a game if baseball is not going to be impacted by one of the players pulling out a gun and shooting the ball out of the air mm-hmm. because then that 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 would, guy would be ejected and that would not be part of the game because it's not part of the rules of baseball you can't shoot a ball out of the air with a gun. You can't do the same thing with politics because all sorts of shit happens and there really aren't rules. And so at any moment, the FBI director can reopen an investigation into a candidate's emails or a candidate could pull his dick out uh, or right. like like anything. Or can like access access Hollywood just, tape, there are like, variables you yeah. cannot account for. The, the idea that like you can treat politics the way you treat sports is fundamentally asinine yeah also dangerous i think and dangerous right it sort of like reinforces this sort of like the racehorse sort of narrative of yeah. like how politics go but also like i mean yeah. baseball like <laughs> you can observe somebody's actual skill level and what they accomplish and like yeah. translating that to what people think of a candidate mm-hmm. that that's not how that's not how yeah. it is it's yeah completely different yeah and there would be like if we if if donald trump was the thousandth president Nate would have more of a leg to stand on because then there would be enough numbers that like it would kind of boil out some of like the weird fringe chances of things happening just because there would be so much data. But there's not. (laughs) You haven't even had 50. Yeah. I don't think he would. uh, That's crazy. That that sample size. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is crazy. You're like, wow. Oof. Got a ways to go before we hit a thumb. Yeah. Yeah. 
before we go, I wanted to give Washington Post its due. Oh um, yeah. In regards to Bernie Sanders coverage, mm-hmm. um, and share with you this this headline from 2015, and I want to I want you both to guess who you think wrote it. Okay. Twenty thousand people came to see Bernie Sanders in Boston. Why aren't we talking more about it? Fair question. Who wrote it? Oh God, I don't know. Chris uh, Silizza. Really? Yeah. I, guess, uh, I was yeah. wrong. Yeah, I didn't even know he wrote for the Washington Post. I didn't either. Unbelievable. Good take, Chris. You're one good take. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Yeah, we, we, we know what to read and listen to and what yeah, not you guys to feel, read and You guys feel to. clear uh, on where to get your information? <laughs> yes. Breitbart, right? Dot com? Yes. Breitbart. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where we landed. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, V-Dare. V-Dare is another V-Dare. good one. Oh, V-Dare is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Daily Stormer, some Ooh, really hot sure. takes. Mm-hmm. Daily yeah. Caller. Mm, Daily, Daily Caller. Daily Caller, yep. For sure. Gateway Get, Pundit. The, yeah. Daily Mail. <sighs> All the dailies. Daily Mail. All the dailies. You know what Daily I love Wire. about the Daily Mail is when the Daily Mail reposted the entirety of a mass shooter's manifesto. Uh, uh, just uncritically just like shooters. plastered it on yeah. the... I didn't know they did that. Uh, what the hell? Uh, yeah, what? they did that because they're responsible journalists, Cody. Oh, that's wow. why. That's what that looks like. That's why. Okay. Yes. So stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast, wherein I read Anders Breivik's manifesto with no commentary. <laughs> um, you mean uh, <laughs> you're going to read 12 Rules for Life? <laughs> God. Not to say that they're uh, the same, but um, I feel like feel like maybe Jordan Peterson read a little, a little Anders and was like, oh, man, he's kind of right about a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> He had that decision we all have where you have to choose between being a rich political personality who gets paid to lecture at colleges and shooting dozens of children. Uh, and thankfully, he chose the He chose the right one. He chose yeah. the right one. It's working yeah. out for him. Yeah. I feel like the root of the problem is still there. But yeah, yeah. how, how yeah. the tree grew um, is a better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, better tree. So stay tuned for more of the worst year ever. Yeah. Also, stay tuned for the literal worst year ever. And for the uh, literal, yeah. Yeah, the actual year and the show about the year. Uh, we'll be the, ratcheting this up yeah. more later. Yeah. Um, yeah, not every episode is going to be us talking about media <laughs> sources. No. Uh, it's going to be talking about a lot of other stuff, but I I feel good about this. I think this is a, a great place for us to start. Yeah, it's a good primer. Trust, yeah. Get some perspective. And... Trust only us. That's what, that's what we mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the takeaway trust... that uh, this two-parter is to give you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trust um, only us, and uh, you know that that way you'll just kind of uncritically accept it when we start pushing our secret dark horse candidate yep. for 2020. Absolutely, Theodore Kaczynski. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with Vermin Supreme, but uh, you went with Kaczynski. Okay, okay, okay. Um, uh, real quick before you go, make sure to check out our website. Uh, it's www dot worstyearpod dot com. And on both Instagram and Twitter, we're at Worst Year Pod. Simple. Heck yeah. Ease to remember. We all just followed it. I said ease mm-hmm. because it was easier than saying easy. <laughs> it's way easier than saying. <laughs> I'm really good at ending podcasts. <laughs> so like and subscribe. And in the meantime, maybe stockpile some dried food. Maybe buy a machete and some bolt cutters. Maybe pick up, you know, a couple of months of of extra mm, your prescription, whatever that happens to be. Maybe hoard insulin. Maybe buy ammo. Whatever. Sounds good. (laughs) Order all of that from (laughs) Amazon.com. Choose one day delivery to put lots of people's lives Mm -hmm. in risk, right? Isn't that a thing? 
And stay tuned for our next episode on why Medicare for all just isn't very practical. (laughs) Hard agree. I think I think good things are uh, impossible. We have a new tagline. <laughs> good things are impossible. Enjoy the I worst think year what, ever. What was impossible. the one failing? Uh, just like the, from the last episode, failing something. Failing spectacularly, something like that. Failing yeah. spectacularly, <laughs> yes. Well, guys, we did it. Cool. Bye. You know what? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.